Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. Normally, we release a new episode every Thursday, but this week, we're working overtime as the Toronto International Film Festival, known as TIFF, is underway. On recent episodes, we talked to TIFF directors around the themes of jazz biographies and crime stories. For this episode, I focus on two women directors at the festival. I'll speak with veteran director Petra Epperlein, whose new film, Karl Marx City, explores her family's life in East Germany. She digs into the archives of the Stasi secret police to answer a mystery about her deceased father. There are many cases where um, husbands and wives informed on each other, or brothers and sisters. So many East Germans have the approach that they rather don't know than face the uncomfortable truth. We'll hear more from Petra in the second half of the show. My first guest is Erin Heidenreich. I first got to know her over 10 years ago when she worked in New York as a film sales agent with the company Synetic Media. I, I actually had this, this moment when <laughs> I was working at Synetic and my brother had recently moved to China and I went and visited him. And just the, the kind of world opened up for me a little bit. I was like, there are just so many stories I want to tell. And I remember having this, this feeling like I was, I was turning 30 and I was like, I'm not married yet. I don't have kids. If I'm going to do something crazy and, you know, and finally do what I want to do, I, I should do it. Erin moved to China and made short films in Asia, Africa, and elsewhere. Now she's making her feature documentary debut with a film mostly set in Pakistan called Girl Unbound. The film profiles the squash player Maria Torpakai Wazir, who grew up in the Taliban-controlled area Waziristan, where girls are forbidden to play sports. Maria avoided that restriction by dressing as a boy and going by the name Genghis Khan. Eventually, she entered international competitions as a female. She had tremendous support from her family, but her notoriety brought death threats. Maria moved to Toronto to work with a squash coach, and a producer brought her story to the attention of Erin. I reached Erin by Skype at her current home base in Los Angeles. I asked what attracted her to the story of Girl Unbound. Well, Maria has a really interesting childhood. You know, passing as a boy in order to play sports was fascinating to me. But the big question I had when the producer came to me was, what is, what is her story now? And, and to me, that's, that's kind of where the whole world opened up. Because when you deal with the questions of human existence, or, or maybe even more accurately, like what, what makes us choose to do something that's actually going to put us in the face of, of death? Like those kinds of questions of what drives us to sort of push ourselves into these places where we're literally putting our lives in our lives on the line and our lives of our family on the line. Like what, what makes you do that? And with Maria, what, what was just so interesting, the more I got to know her is that so much of it came down to what I felt was like this, this naturalness about her just wanting to be herself and, and to be herself from the, the area that she's from, that meant, you know, wanting to just be an athlete (laughs) and wanting to, and being a woman and being the woman that she felt comfortable in and what that skin looked like. And, you know, even though she's, she's a girl from, you know, this, you know, this region of the world that's really far away from me, 
like that was something that I could really identify with, not just, you know, in my own life, but also, you know, in the, in the women I surround myself with is, is how do we kind of put on, how do we go out in this, in this world today, um, being women when the sort of society has said one thing to us and yet we're trying to maybe do something else and how does that all work together? And, and how does family play into that? It's like when you're making, you know, when you're making these choices to put yourself and potentially your family's lives on the line, does your family support you? You know, you know, in Maria's case, like they completely support her. Like how far do you go to test these limits? So at the time you uh, did meet Maria, what was happening in her life right then? At that point, she had received death threats from the Taliban because she was a girl playing sports, playing squash, which is the second most popular sport in Pakistan. And after she received death threats, she had actually gotten herself out of Pakistan to Toronto, where she felt she couldn't play freely in Pakistan. So I met her when she was training in Toronto. And a former world champion squash player had actually connected with her over email and helped her get there. And, and she was in this, you know, I would say this kind of maybe dark place in her life where it's like she was doing the things she loved, which is playing squash, but she wasn't with the people she loved, which was her family who were back home in Pakistan. And it was really kind of, you know, in some senses, watching her journey, trying to reconcile how can she be who she is? How can she be near her family? And, and still exist in, in the culture that she loves, you know, which is her Pashtun culture, you know, back in, in Pakistan. Now, g- given that she had been uh, threatened with, with violence, did she have any concerns about making a film that would potentially draw more attention to her? Definitely. Yeah, there's definitely a concern about it. And I would say she, she's worried about it. I think we're all worried about that. One of the great things about Maria and her family is consistently you see them choosing what they would call is is the right path for themselves, which doing what they believe is right. It's mostly influenced by their belief in Islam. And and she believes that playing her sport is 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 right, is okay for women to do. And 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 telling that story she thinks is really important. And so yeah, it's it's a risk. And, you know, we're as we get to these final stages of finishing the film and taking it out into the world, it's definitely weighing on all of our minds, for sure. So we should give a kind of bigger picture of this family. Maria isn't the only standout character there. She also has a sister who's involved in Pakistani politics and activism. Yes. Yes. She has an older sister who is uh, the actually now the youngest woman in, in parliament. She is from the tribal areas and she's one of, you know, I think she's the only woman occupying a seat in the, in the National Assembly um, from those areas. And there's, there's, there's no doubt that uh, in a family with six kids with these two daughters, Maria and her sister's name is Aisha, have been influenced by, by their dad to get, to get where they are. So you meet Maria in, in Toronto, and then eventually you do take a trip with her back to Pakistan. What was that like? You know, on one hand, that's actually where the film really came together for me. Because what happened when I went back to Pakistan with Maria the first time is I got a chance to meet her family. And then it all, from a story storytelling perspective, that's when it all came together because it made sense why she was taking the risks she was taking. 
And it also, for me, became something that was really relatable to myself and to potentially many other people is, is getting to know these different, you know, characters within her family. And I mean characters in that they are characters <laughs> um, and how they've influenced her. And so it was actually a really beautiful thing to go back and meet her family and just really integrate myself right in with the family. I mean, I slept in their house. I traveled with them in the cars everywhere. We, we went, you know, everywhere together. From uh, a risk-taking perspective, it, it was at times pretty dangerous. I wasn't allowed to be in the tribal areas as an American um, without any sort of special credentials. And, you know, I'm also a woman traveling out to those areas. But in some weird sense, being a woman actually allowed me to, to pass more easily at points because there are a lot of military checkpoints in those areas. And I was completely, you know, covered up with my dupata, my, my, uh, the, the scarf covering my face with just my eyes showing, you know, with my camera, you know, hidden right underneath my, my clothing there. And I'm sitting in the back seat. And at these, at these checkpoints, they only ever talk to the men in the front seat. So I could just kind of lower my eyes and just sit there and, and nobody would ask me any questions. So they didn't hear my, my American accent or anything. And, um, you know, but, but just kind of, you know, moving around in those areas. I mean, there's the, the weird thing about, you know, some of the danger that Marie and her family are in is that it's not always obvious. Like there's a lot of people that are informers. There's a lot of people that really despise what they're doing. And, um, and so the key is to always keep moving from place to place, never stay, you know, one place for too long, you know, overnight. And, and there, there are a couple of, you know, harrowing situations. Well, there's, there's one that's in the movie, uh, a night when you're on the road with uh, Maria and her sister Aisha as, as Aisha's doing some political campaigning and you spend the night in a kind of compound and there's a lot of concern that people in the area might know you're there and might attack that compound. And on film, anyways, it comes across as a very tense night. I wonder if you can tell me more about what that experience was. Yeah, it was it was a very tense night. But there, there was really no alternative. We couldn't go back into the road because you might be able to see in the film a little bit. The, the road was, you know, it, it's, it's, you know. There's no streetlights. Yeah, yeah, that's an easy way to put it. Um, and so we, we had to stay there, and um, and so a lot of, a lot of the people that you know were kind of around us were start to stand outside. I would say guard maybe with their Kalashnikovs for the night. You know, I'm I'm sitting there trying to film all this, which is you know a very weird thing in and of itself. You know, after there's no electricity, I and I had this moment at like, like you know, some like maybe 2 a.m. where I'm literally like have 10% left on my laptop, and I'm like quickly trying to download footage before the battery runs out. So we have this footage, and I then get into into you know the cot in one of those cots in that room, and and then you know woke up to bullets or or shots you know going off somewhere around in the distance, and it was really one of those moments where. Um, you know, we were scared. I mean, definitely scared. At the time, that was probably one of the only times in my life where I was just like, there's literally nothing I can do. There's nowhere for me to hide. I, 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 don't, have a, I don't have a work a gun. I don't have a gun near me. And so you, you just kind of, I hate to use the word surrender, but it's almost like surrender. It's almost like you're just like, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It was just this, this belief in like, you know, I'm with this family and they're here too. And I'm just going to trust that it's all going to work out. <laughs> and it did. Now, having known you a little bit over the years, I, I know that you've done a lot of traveling in your life and, and seem to enjoy that. 
Had you ever had life experiences that prepared you for what you were going through then? In some ways. I mean, I think a lot of people have asked me, including my family, who <laughs> was questioning why in the world I was going out there. But, um, you know, is, you know, fair the, question. The, yeah. Um, I think that, you know, what's prepared me? No, I've never been in, in those particular cir- circumstances. I, I was filming a film in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo a couple months prior to that. Like you said, I've traveled a lot. And, but, you know, I think. What it really came down to was this idea of intuition, which is like I didn't, I didn't, that particular trip, I went to Pakistan a few times, but that particular trip, it wasn't that um, I decided I was going to put myself into a roadside compound where Taliban might be attacking me. That's not the way the decisions are made. What the, the way the decisions are made is like I'm going to take the first step, which is like filming Maria in these areas. And then the next step is like, okay, now we're going into even a more desolate area. Am I okay with that? How does that feel? Is that the right thing to do? You take in the information, then you go to an even more remote area. How does that feel? And and so I guess if you you know your question is like if I had any other experiences exactly like that, definitely no. Um, but have I had experiences where I've had to make decisions kind of based on the information in front of me that might put myself in danger and figuring out what the best choice is? I've had those experiences, and that's probably the only thing I can really. Um, that's probably the only way I can answer that. Maria published her memoir, A Different Kind of Daughter, uh, this spring. Was that process already happening? Was she writing that book when you first met her? A little bit. Um, th- there was definitely talk about it. And yeah, it, it, it had started. It started. Um, but it, it, it finished much more quickly than the, the film. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, what did, did, that, did the fact that she was writing her own memoir affect your storytelling at all, or were they two entirely separate things? Not at all, actually, because her memoir is, um, is, is really a lot about her, her childhood, which is, you know, an important part of understanding who she is. But the, fil- the book, you know, really ends when she first leaves Pakistan to travel to Toronto. And in our film really picks up when she makes the decision to, you know, continue to go back to to Pakistan. Aaron Heidenreich's film, Girl Unbound, about Maria Torpakai Wazir, makes its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this week. We'll be back in a minute talking to Petra Epperlein about her film, Karl Marx City. I hope you'll take time to hear other episodes of Pure Nonfiction. This past summer, I spoke to Barbara Koppel, the two-time Oscar-winning director. Last year, she was at TIFF with her film, Miss Sharon Jones. I've had many experiences showing Barbara's films with her in person, and I've noticed that she always stays to watch. I asked her why. I love to sit in the audience and watch the film one It also reminds me of all the different moments that I had while making it. and But more than anything is that being with an audience and watching where they laugh and watching, you know, their moods or they go, or whatever they do, it just fortifies me. It reinforces why I'm doing these films and it's extremely meaningful to me. So I don't wanna miss anything. I wanna be in there and feel that human experience of people watching the film. 
You can hear my full interview with Barbara Koppel on episode 17 of Pure Nonfiction. Now we turn to documentary veteran Petra Epperline making her fourth appearance at TIFF. She and her husband, Michael Tucker, collaborated on a series of documentaries about the Iraq War, starting with Gunner Palace in 2004. Petra is a skilled artist. Her comic book drawings are prominently featured in their second film, The Prisoner or How I Plan to Kill Tony Blair. Several years ago, she had the idea to create a graphic novel about her experiences growing up in East Germany. But that idea eventually turned into their new film, Karl Marx City, named for the city where she grew up. I reached her by Skype at her home in upstate New York. I asked where she was in her life when the Berlin Wall fell. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, I was a student at the university um, in Dresden. I studied architecture back then, and I was 23 years old. So I was very much at the beginning of my life. And, and what did that moment mean for you? The moment when the wall fell was probably one of the most exciting times in my life, obviously. Before, like the weeks before, there were riots on the streets, there were peaceful protests, and I participated in them. And that was that was something that no one thought would ever happen in East Germany. And then when the wall came down a couple of weeks later, that was just... Yeah, it was amazing. It was mind-numbing. I don't even have real words for it. It was unbelievable. I mean, eventually you left, am I right? Uh, you, you came to the West. Well, after the wall came down, of course, everyone explored West Germany and the West in general right away. But I didn't really leave. It's kind of funny that you asked me that because everyone always assumes that we left. I finished my studies in Dresden, and then I went to Berlin because I worked as an architect there, and Berlin was where, where things happened. But of course, the first big trip I did was to New York. So when I came to New York in 1991, the very first time, my English was really, really bad, you know. And to explain myself to people who I encountered Americans, I always told them I grew up in East Germany and we had to learn Russian in school, so my English is really bad. And then what happened, people were always super nice. They were like, oh, my God, you should be so happy that you're free at last. Isn't it great that Ronald Reagan brought down the Berlin Wall? <laughs> and I was, um, okay, that's interesting. That led me to the realization that obviously history is written many different ways, depending on where you are. And I thought that story needs to be told eventually for the Americans from the perspective of the other side of the wall. And I mean, when you heard those words, uh, you know, w what did you think? What was the narrative that you had in your mind? Well, I thought, of course, like, oh, that's interesting. If any politician needs to be thanked for bringing the wall down, it was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev for not ordering his 500,000 troops who were stationed in East Germany back in 89, that he didn't order them to, to shut the revolution down. That is like the only person, the only politician, in my opinion, who uh, actually contributed actively to the whole thing. Otherwise, it was the people, it was me, it was my friends, it was my parents, my brothers, like everybody in East Germany, who after 
40 something years finally um, took the courage and went to the streets and demanded change, which then in the end led to a total collapse of the system really, really fast. So in a way, you've had a seed of telling this story in mind uh, since the early 90s. Uh, what made you come round to, to make this film today? So six or seven years ago, I started working on a graphic novel about um, East Germany because I thought I needed to explain the East to Americans. Um, after drawing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, I realized um, that the graphic novel is not really the medium. And a couple of years ago, we learned about the extensive film and video archive of the secret police in East Germany. And so we decided like two years ago to give it a try and make a film about the whole story, including the personal story of my father's entanglement with the secret police, the Stasi in East Germany. So, I mean, in a way, there's a there's a mystery at the heart of this story. Uh, can, can you describe wh what that mystery is that you were trying to solve? So in the early 90s, after the wall came down, uh, my father received a series of anonymous letters accusing him of having worked for the Stasi, the secret police of East Germany. So this is one, this is a really serious, terrible accusation, which you can impose upon an East German. And, but my father never did anything about it. He never, of course, we all assumed that's just hot air, but nothing was ever done. And the goal was basically to go into the archives of the Stasi and try to find out if there's any substance to these accusations. I couldn't ask my father himself anymore because by the time I learned about the existence of the letters, he had already committed suicide. Which obviously raised further concerns for you. Exactly. That um, could make all of us more suspicious. Did he commit suicide? Because he was ashamed. He was afraid that someone would find something out about his past. I don't know. There were many open questions. And so... After many years, we decided to to face the truth and um, request his files and our own files in the Stasi archive. I mean, I've never made a personal film before, and it's not only about my story and my relationship to my father. There's also, like, my family is involved, my mother and my brothers, and it's a pretty painful undertaking to force someone to... Um, find out the truth. So we also had to convince them to actually be interested or to, to be willing to go and ask the Stasi archive uh, for their files, because you never know what you find out. And so what was that process like, uh, you know, uh, winning over your family to, to be part of this? Well, again, so I grew up in East Germany, you know, and you and the East Germans are being brought up to like be modest people and not like talk about themselves too much. So that had to be overcome first. Um, and then, yeah, I had to convince my mother to to ask for these files. And she was very, very reluctant because her attitude was, yeah, I don't really want to know what's in it because who knows who was an Stasi man in my environment. You know, I mean, there are many cases where um, husbands and wives informed on each other or 
brothers and sisters. So many East Germans have the approach that they rather don't know than face the uncomfortable truth. So that took some convincing, but I finally did convince everybody to participate. You know, I, I feel like there was a uh, a wave of people looking into Stasi files maybe ten years ago or or, or more, and uh, and in a way that that story kind of had a, a certain cycle in in literature and uh, in other places. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's interesting the way you describe this because it it makes me realize that it's it's an experience that has not been fully processed it's it's still ongoing exactly yeah you're right in the right after the wall came down many people asked for their files and there were these initial re- revelations and then even the archive the people there themselves they assumed that interest would rain down over the years but in the last 5 years or so there's actually a, a renewed interest in people's files because there is this generation, my generation, basically, people who were very young when the wall came down, and they never bothered to actually find things out. They are interested in their parents' past, suddenly, or in their own past, and they actually want to know the truth. Because there is an interesting um, question, what is not really addressed in Germany up until today, 26 years later, that's the question of complicity. I mean, East Germany existed for 40 years. There were actually adults living in that country. I mean, it was not thoroughly a police state, especially in the later later years. So people must have participated in the existence of the state. And I find it kind of interesting when you walk around and ask people, so how can it be that you lived for 40 years in this oppressive system and just lived there and didn't do anything about it. So the complicity of people living there, that is a question which we explore in the film as well. Sounds to me like this must have been a very heavy thing to be dealing with. I mean, not only with your family, but also uh, in the country and talking to your neighbors. What was the period of time? How many weeks or months were were you working on this? Well, we actively started filming almost two years ago. We did some tests and we went back for like uh, four or five times and filmed in Germany. We interviewed many, many people, people who were who suffered under the regime. We talked to actually convinced a Stasi man to talk on camera to us, which is, I mean, almost I don't even know anyone else who ever did that because uh, even today, they are very much vilified, rightly so. So yeah, it was a pretty long process. But again, you know, I started basically thinking about it in 1991, I just to find the form that happened in the last, let's say, two years. Now, I want to ask you about digging into those Stasi archives, because in, in the film, you uncover video surveillance as well as photographs. Explain to me what that process is of of uncovering those files. Yeah, it's not really that easy. In theory, everybody can go to the Stasi archive and ask for his or her file. To see someone else's files, even a deceased person or a close relative, is this very, very complicated because 
of course, the material that was collected was collected under a oppressive regime. So the privacy of the people whose information is sitting in these archives is very, very important. So that makes it a little bit difficult. You also shouldn't forget that it's a paper-based archive, and it's an archive of a secret police. So it wasn't meant to be read by anyone outside of the secret police. So it's a pretty complicated structure in itself. So it takes a long time to find information. I mean, people should see the film to find out what you learned about your family. But but I'd love for you to describe the the film surveillance that you found. Yeah, so this was a surprise. A couple of years ago, we learned that the uh, Stasi did not only collect lots of written material, like, I don't know, 110 kilometers worth of files. They also have hundreds and hundreds of hours of film and video material, surveillance material, and also propaganda they produced themselves. And that was actually very exciting. As well, besides the personal information you find in the archives, it was really exciting to go in there and see how, how they saw themselves. When you look at the propaganda films they produced, that can be funny at times or really, really disturbing. And then also we learned that many of the big cities in East Germany, they were completely under video surveillance. Many of these files don't exist anymore. For instance, Kalmark City was completely under video surveillance, the whole downtown. None of this video survived. The Stasi tried to destroy as much material as possible right after the wall came down because, yeah, they knew the end was near. But what we found was super fascinating. And we um, actually tried to illustrate the East Germany through the footage from the Stasi entirely. It's like it's like a B-roll of a dictatorship. You know, it, it strikes me that the city you grew up in, Karl Marx City, which now has a different name and, and must be very different than it was when you grew up. I wonder if going into those film and video archives brought back that city for you. Yeah, that's funny, actually, when I, how much we are formed by our childhood experience. When I watch footage from Kalmark City in 1975, um, like the military marches for the 1st of May celebration or anything, that feels strangely like home because this is what I was exposed uh, to and I get sentimental about it, which is disturbing, but it's also natural. We all think our childhood was this perfect place where we long to go back to. Unfortunately, mine was this weird oppressive system, so I don't really long to go back to. But it does trigger all these same emotions that are triggered when you watch your favorite kids' TV show from 1973. You grew up in a surveillance state, and today, the the question of a surveillance state is has all kinds of fresh meaning, and and I wonder what connections you see between the historical era of your film and today. Yeah. So besides being uh, about this personal story, the film is very much about surveillance and trust in society. So in East Germany, the state, the oppressive state, surveyed everyone. You were always suspicious that the person who you talked to outside of your home would work for the Stasi and rat you out. Today, there's also state-subsidized surveillance. 
which is very bothersome. And But we live in a democracy. So we should have all tools available to actually keep the state and its surveillance tools in check. That's our responsibility as citizens. But at the same time, we have private companies collecting so much information on everybody, which everybody gives up on their own free will. And I personally think people don't think about this enough because these private companies, we have no way of checking what they are doing with our information. So we need to be more mindful about what kind of information we actually surrender to private companies. I think that's a discussion what should be had. Karl Marx City, directed by Petra Epperlein and Michael Tucker, makes its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this week. I want to thank both Aaron Heidenreich and Petra Epperlein for talking to me. I hope you enjoyed this special Friday edition of our podcast. We'll return with episode 21 on our normal Thursday schedule. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media handlers, Jordan Smith, Alana Schreiber, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes. And please spread the word to your friends. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.